Hello? I'm Will. Um, so I'm doing the reading tonight. Uh, this is Proverbs 5, 15 through 21. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for your strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. And this is John 4, 7 through 26. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as he did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us these things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm sorry to do this to the worship people. Um, it's going to sound lovely on the, on the recording there. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm going to come in the middle. Is that okay? How are we doing? Yes. Okay. It sounds about right. Uh, it's good to be with you. It's nice to see you all again. Um, for some reason, it feels like a long time, but I know it hasn't been. Um, for those who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister for RUF, or Reformed University Fellowship. 
just a little bit about RUF and then we'll get started. RUF, whoop, here we go. Um, RUF is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve the campus and you all, wherever you are and however you are. And we mean that, we mean that you don't have to be from one particular group on campus. Uh, we're not trying to serve one kind of person in RUF, we're trying to serve every kind of person. And that means you can be from any scene on campus, you can be from any personal background, uh, and uh, you can come however you are and wherever you are, uh, even spiritually, uh, whatever that means for you with Jesus or with Christianity. Uh, and we mean that, like we, whether you're convinced or unconvinced, whether you're a believer or a spiritual skeptic, or maybe something in between or none of the above, we're really glad you're here, and we hope you feel welcomed and uh, feel part of the group. Um, and that's really just to say thanks for coming, especially if you're new and you've never been here before. Thanks for coming. We really love that you're here. Um, and I'd really love to get to know you and meet you. So if I have not met you, come find me or I'll come find you and we'll say hello to each other. Nothing more, nothing less. And uh, also Eric uh, or Steph Curry right there. And Maddie, Taco Tuesday, Maddie. Uh, <laughs> would also love to say hi as well. And there's plenty of students that also would love to say hello. All right, so this semester in large group, um, we've been studying the topic of relationships. We're looking at relationships, or more precisely, what does Jesus have to do with our friendships, our families, dating, our sex, our singleness, and our marriage? So for the first four weeks, we looked kind of broadly, big picture look at the foundation of our relationships. We traced where the biblical story through that foundation. And then the last few weeks, we've been looking smaller picture at our different types of relationships. We ask the question, and we've been asking it every week, what does it look like to remember the good and practice God's mending for what's threadbare or ripping in our families, friendships, and dating, parts one and two? This week, uh, we'll look at a powerful dynamic that actually is coursing throughout at work within dating and not dating, as well as singleness and marriage. And that is the three-letter word, sex. Get used to me saying that. I'm just going to say it over and over and over again. You'll cringe less and less every time, I promise. So sex, we should not be cringing about it because, to be honest, before I begin this culturally uh, charged topic, I'm just going to say a few words uh, so that you can kind of buy into this with me. I want to say how I'm going to speak about sex and how I hope you will hear me speak about sex. This is important. Um, first, I'm going to attempt to speak freely and somewhat specifically about sex. Because as we just read in the Bible, in Proverbs 5 in particular, the Bible speaks about sex freely and specifically. Uh, you see also, um, while our cultural moment shouts about sex anywhere and everywhere and loudly, oftentimes the Christian church is far too silent about sex, uh, something that God is not silent about in the scriptures. Too often Christians treat sex like a library, whispering and giggling in the corner, <laughs> or shushing good conversations that need to happen out loud. Second, I'm gonna ask you to use all of your patience to hear me out to the very end. And then also, would you extend the kindness, and I've said this before, but I'm gonna say it again, to separate what I am saying from what I am not saying. Some of you are gonna come in and assume I'm gonna say something, and I might not be saying that. Uh, and certainly the scripture might not be saying that too. So that's all my caveats. Um, we're going to pray and we're going to get started. Sound good? Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for this time. I do pray that you'd help me to be careful with my words. This is a, this is a heavy-duty topic. Um, it, can, it can wound and it can heal, and it can do both sometimes. Uh, I pray that you would um, just be with my words. Help me to choose them carefully by your spirit. I pray that you would separate the wheat from the chaff, um, that uh, what bears fruit would be kept and what doesn't would be scattered to the wind. I pray that you would be, uh, Jesus, draw near to all of us wherever we are, some of us are barely here um, spiritually or, or emotionally or mentally. Uh, some of us have had a week um, that's been so hard, and some of us have had a week that's so easy. Some of us are not sure whether you exist, God, and some of us are fairly certain. I pray that you'd be with all of us no matter where we are, and I pray that you'd meet us, you'd draw near to us, and that Jesus, through looking at your scriptures together, that you'd be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, that you'd be high and lifted up and that we would see you as you truly are, or at least get a glimpse uh, this side of heaven uh, of who you truly are. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so as many of you know, I have three small children. Uh, my oldest are twin eight-year-olds, and then I have a six-year-old girl. So boy-girl twins, I know you guys care so much, but that's, that's, the, that's the order and arrangement. One of the earliest things that I can remember them saying, uh, besides like ball and mom and dad, when they were growing up, was the word broken. They said broken an awful lot. When they were younger, they would bring me a toy that wouldn't light up, and they would say, broken. They would bring a book that was ripped with pages flying everywhere, and they would hold up to me and go, broken. <laughs> you see, broken is not just a description of the toy or the book. Broken is also a request for me as their father to fix the toy or the book to make it work like it used to work, where it's supposed to work, to heal it, to repair it back to wholeness. Some things just required new batteries and scotch tape and I could handle that. And other things were well beyond my abilities. And as my kids get older and older, I realize there are more and more things that I just can't fix. They will bring me a problem from recess or a disappointed feeling. And I can't fix that broken feeling or that broken relationship. Of course, broken isn't just a description of reality for little children. Uh, broken is also not just a request that small child-sized hearts actually say. Uh, broken is something that all of our hearts are speaking about all of the time. When I think about our lives, when I think about my life, the fracture lines in my life in particular, there are so many areas where the word broken could focus us in on. Money, work, alcohol, food, family, friends, but sex, like it or not, is a fact of life that dominates our heart's conversation pattern. Whether celebrating a good gift or lamenting when that gift isn't working rightly. This kind of brokenness is outside of us in society, including the church, and also it's within us. It's the kind of brokenness that new batteries and a little bit more scotch tape uh, can't seem to fix. It's social, it's emotional, and it's spiritual fragmentation that needs a healer. A healer who knows intimately who we are and infinitely what's at stake. The healer the Bible calls in this passage, John chapter 4, the Messiah or Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. In our two passages tonight, Proverbs chapter 5 and the Gospel of John chapter 4, Jesus is telling us all a few important things about sex. There is a false intimacy which promises wholeness, 
but delivers only fragmentation. And there is a true intimacy which promises to fix what's broken inside and outside of us and delivers whole-scale healing through Jesus, who is the Messiah. And really, that's the whole story of sex in the Bible, what it's all about. Jesus is the long-awaited healer. And when we share sexual longings, our sexual longings, or our sexual wounds with him, Jesus, over time, fixes what is broken within us. That's my main takeaway, my one sentence. Jesus is the long-awaited healer, the Messiah. And when we share our sexual longings and our sexual wounds with him, usually in prayer, Jesus fixes what is broken within us. As you noticed, we have two passages we're looking at tonight. And so our outline and also uh, your handout is going to look slightly different uh, than usual. And so first, I'd like us to look at both the passages simultaneously, very big picture, and see what they say metaphorically about sex. And here's my contention. You see this in point one. Sex is about more than sex. Sex is about more than sex. It is a, sex is a physical description of our spiritual desire for intimacy. Okay? Sex is a physical description of our spiritual desire for intimacy. Point two, we're going to look at Proverbs, that chapter five, those verses in particular, and we're going to explore true and false intimacy as it relates to the human institution of marriage. And then third and finally, we're going to look at uh, John chapter four and those verses there, and we're going to look at the way that true and false intimacy relate to the God-man Jesus. That's where we're going, those three points. So we're going to begin in a way that we usually don't begin. And we're going to look at two giant chunks of scripture together and look at the way that the Bible describes sex in both Proverbs chapter 5 and John chapter 4. And also like in many other passages in scripture that I'm just going to reference. All right. So both the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament and the book of John in the New Testament, which are written some 3,000 years apart, by the way, describe sex with the same image. Sex is a thirst and sex also looks like the drinking of water to satisfy that thirst. Okay, so sex is a thirst, and it's also the drinking of water to satisfy that thirst. Those are the images that you see over and over again in Scripture, let alone these two chunks of Scripture. Proverbs chapter 5 tells us to drink water from your own cisterns, flowing water from your own well, in order to, have, to talk about having sex with your spouse. Okay, John chapter 4 connects the Samaritan woman at the well's desire for a drink of water to her five previous husbands and one current live-in lover. In fact, the Bible uses thirst and water as a metaphor for sex in numerous places, as I just said. I could have chosen any number of different passages to preach from tonight. And of course, many of you have heard this idea of thirst or thirsty outside of the Bible too, right? It's a cultural word, as in he's so thirsty, or she looks thirsty, or my personal favorite, the thirst is real. I don't know really all those things mean, but it's okay, <laughs> because they're in your lives, um, and in mine. All right, but notice the Christian scripture also consistently pairs the description of sex as a thirst with spiritual longings. So we see sex as a thirst with spiritual longings, such as when Jesus connects the Samaritan woman's thirst to his offer of living water welling up to eternal life. 
This is because sex is a physical metaphor for a bigger spiritual reality. It's, for, it's a metaphor for connection, for union and communion, for just intimacy. Intimacy is about knowing and about being known in a holistic way, in every part of ourselves, spiritually, emotionally, socially, economically, mentally, and physically. We catch this in the, the original language of the scriptures. The Hebrew word yada, translated to know, also is equally often translated to have sex, yada. Okay, and it points to this reality, this kind of commingling of these two things. Therefore, the longing for an enjoyment of sex is an intense form of, of physical intimacy, as well as a sign that points to a greater spiritual reality. So sex is doing two things at once. It's enjoyable on a physical level, and it's also a signpost to a greater reality. That is, sex is actually about drawing close and inside, getting gotten, relieving tensions, soothing and satisfying our hearts. Sex is about being known in our complete and utter nakedness, down to every wrinkle and freckle and birthmark, and being adored all the more. Ultimately, though, sex is the pursuit of a deep and personal intimacy a search for God. It's about a search for God. Let me give you an analogy. Okay, Sex is like that green road sign that says 60 miles to the Grand Canyon, not the Grand Canyon itself. Okay, Sex is the road sign, not the Grand Canyon itself. So sex is this place that we can legitimately rejoice over, but it's also not where we unload the entire station wagon. We don't lay the blankets, we don't unfold the lawn chairs, spread the picnic, take a few selfies for our Instagram accounts, and then return home satisfied that we visited the very edge of the transcendent and awesome wonder of the universe that is God. That's not what sex is about. That, that means that like, sex is pointing to something bigger than itself. That is, our sense of wonder with sex is actually righteous. It's right to have a sense of awesome wonder about sex. But it's ultimately short-sighted if we think we get if we just stop there. This is what G.K. Chesterton means when he says, "Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God." Every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. In other words, sex is not just about sex. Sex is not just about hormones and urges and arousal and orgasm and endorphins. Sex is not a mere mechanical behavior like a light switch that you flip on and off at will. Therefore, Christians need to speak differently about sex than we usually do. Our message cannot just shout, stop it, stop it, stop it, okay? Which is what some of you grew up under or have heard or have that vision of the church. And then, you know, stop it followed by like a guilt and fear stick that beats the youth groups across America into shame-filled submission. Okay? Instead, what's actually behind sex is a desire for true intimacy. Sex is a taste of the union and communion that we have with Jesus Christ. But sex can and sometimes does quickly devolve into false intimacy. In the words of counselor Michael Cusick, our sex can often get its wires crossed. And sometimes sex seeks on a physical level what can only be obtained on a spiritual level. This is what the Bible calls lust and what psychologists call false intimacy, seeking on a physical level what can only be obtained on a spiritual level. 
And so this like confused pursuit of intimacy can make sex with other people or sex by yourself on the internet so very compulsive. Like a never ending cycle that only leads to desperation, despair and bondage. This confusion, this wire crossing can make sex become an addiction, an addiction to the affirmation and affection, to the safety and significance that's so deep, it's so deep that purity pep talks and guilt and fear shakedowns only glance off the surface of that desire. But let's bring us back to the Babel's metaphor of sex is thirst. And I'm gonna quote Frederick Buechner, who neatly summarizes how longing for and drinking in false intimacy actually only makes us thirstier. Longing for and drinking in false intimacy only makes us thirstier. This is what Buechner says, he writes this. Lust is the craving for salt of a man dying of thirst. Lust is the craving for salt of a woman dying of thirst. Get that? Okay, so what do we do with all this? What, so what's the takeaway, Druin? <laughs> look, first, let's take a look at our contemporary view of sex with me. Really, all I'm arguing is this. That's a lot of really fancy ways of saying this. Compared to the Bible, our contemporary culture, our view of sex is far too low. It's way too low. If sex in the Bible is a signpost to the Grand Canyon, culturally, sex is just buying candy at CVS. Okay, so biblical sex is like a signpost to the Grand Canyon, a natural wonder of the world. And I'm saying culturally, we treat sex like buying candy at CVS. Whether you've gotten increasingly uncomfortable every time I've said the word sex, and I've said it a lot, and especially that one time I said orgasm, you were just creeped out. <laughs> like, maybe you feel like we don't really actually live in bodies. Or, on the other hand, maybe you think sex is just another natural animal appetite, and you're thinking, is he going to preach on eating or bathroom breaks next week? As if bodies were all we are. Either way, whether you call yourself a Christian or you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here tonight. We live in an age that has demystified sex to the point of absolute boredom. Sex is something to shun or yet another technique and, and of need satisfaction of an organism. Just another biological process. Second takeaway, now that we see our own views of sex for what they are, the Bible is asking us to think and to act in a way that reflects a much more elevated view of sex. And we see this call to the elevated view of sexuality in our second point in Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. True and false intimacy inside and outside of marriage. So we're going to track to Proverbs 5 here, getting a little bit more specific. As we begin to unpack the like meaning and imagery of Proverbs 5, I want you to see how clearly God is for sex. God is very, very pro-sex. Rah, rah, re, sex, okay? He's got the foam finger waving in the banner and saying, have sex, okay? He's huge and he's into it, okay? He's not just sex as procreation into it. He's also sex as rejoicing and delight into it. You see, God gave us bodies and he made them feel sexual pleasure with each other. He didn't have to do that to create babies. Unlike someone in his church, even, God does not think that sex, he does not think that sex is nasty or dirty. 
In verses 18 through 19, God is exhorting young and old, men and women alike, to have sex, to have more sex, to rejoice in the other person, and delight in their God-given body parts. Please know these sexual directions are not just for young men, they're for young women and old men and old women too. So the Christian message about sex is not prudish. It's not stop having fun sex. The true Christian message is actually embodied. Rejoice in your wife or your husband. Be sexually decadent. Be captivated in their loveliness and their love for you. This is one way we begin to satisfy our sexual thirst for true intimacy. We turn our sexual thirst towards a spouse and we drink deeply and we drink repeatedly. You see, Christianity is not like advertising. Christianity is like art, another analogy. Like the best poetry and music, Christianity is about rejoicing, uh, rejoicing in the extraordinariness that's invested in seemingly ordinary things. Christianity tells us to look, to hear, to taste, to touch again the most ordinary everyday things. Look at the grandeur of falling in love. Look again at the grandeur of breaking up, the streets we grew up on, freshly cut grass, trees dripping with sap. This is exactly what verses, uh, chapter 5 of Proverbs, verses 18 and 19 are asking us to do. They're saying, turn again to familiar and everyday people. People like spouses and invest again with your time and your attention and yes, your sex. In the short story, Wife Wooing, John Updike, who's an author, gives a taste for the artistry behind biblical sex for just how joyous and mysterious and sexy a spouse can be. Updike is looking back at his seven-year marriage and a recent trip he took to pick up fast food dinner at a diner for his wife and children. And he writes this. It's really beautiful. Seven years since I wed, wide, warm woman, white-thighed, wooed and wed, wife, a knife of a word that for all its final bite did not end the wooing, to my wonderment, We eat meat, meat I rested warm from raw hands of the hamburger girl in the diner a mile away, a ferocious place, slick with savagery, wild with chrome, young predators snarling dirty jokes menaced me, old men reached for me with coffee-warm paws, I wielded my wallet, and I won my way back, back through the black winter air to the fire, the intimate cave where halloos and hurrahs greeted me. But at this point, some of you must be thinking to yourself, does Sid realize we're single and unmarried? <laughs> does he get that? <laughs> does he know? So it's just going to be about spouse sex the whole time. Does Proverbs 5 have anything to say to us in college and, and unmarried? Well, verses 15 through 20 contrast two kinds of sex. Okay, sex contained in marriage in a private home fountain and sex outside of marriage that is spread through the streets, public and shared. At the heart of these contrasting images is an intentionally loaded and arguably provocative question. Would you rather drink from a private well, or would you prefer to drink from the public streamless, shared from street to street? Okay, private well or shared public streamlets. In less metaphorical terms, the author of Proverbs is saying this, would you prefer to have married sex? Have sex and do sexual things with one person in a lifelong, private, and intimate relationship? Or 
Would you prefer to have casual sex, to want to get naked or nearly naked with a few or several people, running a trial and error experiment with individuals that you may or may not know well, but only one of whom you'll marry long term, if you're lucky? This is the question that's posed by Proverbs 5. Which of those alternatives would you prefer? But outside the book of Proverbs, many people aren't convinced that true intimacy happens inside of marriage alone. Statistically, 85% of Americans favor premarital sex. 85%. To most 21st century Americans, the Bible's view of sex seems like Pam's grandmother, Mima, in the TV show The Office. Have you seen these episodes with Mima? Mima is like the stern, judgmental, outdated woman who doesn't think that sex outside of marriage is acceptable. And Jim and Pam are these young, fun-loving, in-love couple that who think Mima expects sexual perfection. And there's no healthy American man or woman can actually perform up to Mima's perce- uh, perceptions or expectations. But the Bible's sexual ethic isn't God being mean. It's not God being unrealistic. He's not like some Mima in heaven, okay? That's... God isn't some old heavenly curmudgeon who looks down and says, oh, I know how much you enjoy sex, and therefore you can't have sex, except when you're older and worse looking. <laughs> okay, that's not like his argument in heaven, okay? Contrary to Sigmund Freud in the 1960s, sex isn't actually a universal need like oxygen. It's not a fundamental right like life or liberty. Before you dismiss the whole discussion as one, Big outdated prejudice brought to you by RUF. I would refer to the most recent academic research. Psychiatrists, neurologists, family scientists all agree that sexual contact releases high levels of bonding hormones. Bonding hormones like Oxycontin and Vasopressin. These create what one sex therapist calls an involuntary chemical commitment. Or one UCLA psychiatrist puts it this way, you might say we're designed to bond by these chemicals. These discoveries led a 2013 Ohio State University study to find that casual sexual relationships negatively impact college-age people's mental health. Ohio State is not a Christian university. All this merely affirms the biblical idea, however, that sex is meant to bond a whole person to a whole person. It's the physical expression of the mystery whereby two become one flesh. And in the Bible, oneness, union and communion is not just physical. Oneness is also emotional, intellectual, social, fiscal, and spiritual. Therefore, having sex outside of marriage is treating yourself and the other person piecemeal. It's separating physical union from the public pledge to share checkbooks, friends, families, secrets, and life's joys and sorrows, as long as you both shall live until death do you part. Listen to the way that, again, I'm going to keep quoting many, many scholars here. Unlike, listen to the way that psychiatrist John White summarizes this. Okay, it's a really beautiful quote. Hang with me. The immediate erotic thrill is the most superficial benefit of the sex act. The bodily exposure that arouses and accompanies sex can be profoundly symbolic and powerfully healing. It is healing if it is a concrete sign of what's happening in the whole relationship. The uncovering of my inner self, the uncovering of my deepest fears and yearnings. If I do that 
and as I tenderly look on the body of another, and as I experience what it is to feel the tenderness of another's caress, then the one who accepts and touches my most intimate body also caresses and touches my inmost being. So it only makes sense that sexual relations be confined to marriage for mutual disclosure and tender acceptance is not the activity of a moment, but the delicate fabric of a lifetime's weaving. But some of the pushback against the Christian emphasis on sex inside of marriage is fair. Okay? The way that some Christians single out sex as the sin and make it sound as if it's an unforgivable sin at that, that's just plain wrong. And verse 21 hints that true intimacy is actually much bigger than married sex because our spiritual thirst does not end with marriage. Even in good marriages, we are, I am still thirsty. And these ideas of healing for our sexual hurts, right? And spiritual destination behind our spiritual, our, our sexual longings. So like healing for our sexual hurts, spiritual destination for our sexual longings. These thoughts lead to our third and final point. True and false intimacy as it relates to Jesus, the God man. We're gonna look at John chapter four for this. So look, from verse seven, I'm going to do this pretty by air here, okay? There's a lot of coverage to do here. From verse seven onwards, the passage is packed with signs that the Samaritan woman, that she has internal brokenness from false intimacy. She's fetching water at high noon, which in the day and time meant that she has a lot of secrets that aren't actually secret to anyone in the town. They all knew her business. She intentionally comes late, says little, leaves early from all of her club meetings. She deliberately avoids eye contact coming up the hill the morning after. She sits by herself at commons or feels by herself at packed house meetings. No one else, not even her current but just friend's boyfriend, thinks enough of her to be there with her, sober and in the daylight. Then she's got this thirst, what one commentator calls an unquenchable thirst for love. She has drank five men dry and is working on her sixth. She offered her body, hoping that the guy she was with would see and love her soul. But that didn't happen. And it didn't happen again and again and again. It was yet another hookup that ended near the stairwell of the apartment of F. Or it was trying to get that guy to love her with a roommate banging on the door. Another relationship that ended in a fake friendship because he secretly thinks she isn't good enough for him. And for their parts, each man has promised this woman well, something well beyond sex, an intimacy and a connection. But each man has knowingly and, un, un, and unknowingly failed to deliver on his promise. They've used her physically and, and dumped the more personal parts of her. They've objectified her. They have made her a two-dimensional image like a pornographic picture. And so there this Samaritan woman is at the well at noon, and all she's got left is this permanent and abiding sense of shame. And she drags it around with her with an insecure pride and a private pain. Like all of us, this woman is inbuilt with desires, a thirst to know and be known, to love and to be loved. And like most of us in this room, male and female alike, at significant points in our lives, she got the wires crossed. 
and directed these desires for intimacy away from God and towards photographs or promises or body parts that just made her thirstier for things that can't satisfy. Even if sex isn't your drink of choice, we're all still looking for attention and affection. We're all still looking for security and significance. That's something to take the edge off the stress or to fill in the boredom. And like the woman at the well, we return to that thing and draw water there day after day after day, but it's hard to get enough and it gets harder to feel any relief from the pain anymore. But listen, most important part, Jesus is ready to meet us in our very need. There he is at the rim of the well in the very heat of the day at high noon. And like us, Jesus was tired and thirsty in all of his all too human needs. Jesus offers us something that only his divine nature can offer. He offers her and he offers us eternal life and eternal satisfaction. A living water that gives us a true thirst slaking spiritual intimacy and drips and drops here and there this side of heaven but in heaven like a rushing river you see jesus has faced our every temptation and succeeded where we've failed he lived not to drink us dry and dump us in our humanness not to leave us suffocated by our shame but to die on a cross for us to give us his purity and his passion to love us with affection and attention to give us safety and significance, us, you, and me. No one is too far gone for love. Jesus heals, he fixes us in our broken condition. He binds our souls back together. And this doesn't mean we ever get done with feeling thirsty on this earth. It means that Jesus kisses our wounds and he splints our broken parts And he oh so tenderly, oh so slowly heals our hurts and reorders our disordered loves. All right, let me end with this hope. It's an image. I hope you'll you'll step in it with me. It's a personal story, okay? Last image, last personal story, I promise. (coughs) In graduate school, I took a class, and it was a super intense class. It was called Sex... Oh, sorry, sexuality and sex therapy. Sexuality and sex therapy. A week-long intensive. Eight days, eight hours a day, five days a week. As you can imagine, it was super intense and often uncomfortable as a class. Can you imagine taking that class? And then we had a term paper for this class, and it was one of the last papers I wrote before I began this job, full-time ministry. But this term paper wasn't like a typical academic research paper that you guys write. It was a sexual history paper where I was asked to trace and catalog all the many, and there are many, fragments of my personal sexual brokenness. There on prints on my hard drive. So, of course, I put this off for a while, like anyone would. (laughs) Then one night, and of course it was the night before it was due, I wrote down all of my thoughts in a frenzy. I wrote and I wrote and I kept on writing long, deep into the night, into the next morning. I wrote about my relationship with my dad, my childhood fears, my high school, college, and even seminary lusts. The questions I still have 
even to this day, about how to be a man. And questions I still have, or the insecurities about this me, full of doubts, full of fears, full of lusts, becoming a Christian minister. I wrote it all on the page. In total, I wrote 14 pages. It's a 14 page paper cataloging my sexual brokenness, intricate in detail, the ways I thirsted, the people, I, the things I sucked dry from childhood all the way through grad school. And then, this is the best part, you won't believe this. I printed it off, I stuffed it in an envelope, and I mailed it to the state of Colorado, where my female professor lived most of the year. She'd come to teach us in Orlando, Florida. And as I stamped, addressed, and mailed my most personal and private longings and crushing sins, I imagined my professor somewhere in Colorado receiving this package, like opening it up at a Starbucks, right, with a paper cup of coffee, a red pen, and a stack of papers like mine, flipping through my confessions of inadequacy kind of casually over a latte or whatever. And so months later, with that image in mind, I had moved across the country. I had started this current job, but at a different college in New Mexico State. I received that same tan envelope in my mailbox. I knew it the minute I picked it up. The minute I saw it in my mailbox, I opened that, that mailbox. And, I, and of course, I saw it, I picked it up, and then I waited for a while again. <laughs> okay. When I finally did open it, I sat down and I reread my paper, page one through page 14. That was painful. Can you imagine? And then I braced myself, took a deep breath for her comments. I just kind of imagined a combination uh, in red ink of moral disapproval approval mixed with like spelling errors. <laughs> you know, like through is O-U-G-H, Sid. Um, but to my surprise, as I began to read her comments to me, I started actually tearing up. Let me quote some of them to you. I'm gonna quote some of the comments from my sexual history paper. Uh, because I bet a lot of us, this, what I'm asking you to do in this sermon, sharing our deepest, most private wounds with Jesus, that prayer feels a lot like mailing our sexual secrets to Colorado. But there's a parallel there. So it fits, right? It fits to share how this distant feeling figure lovingly traced the lines of my brokenness after me. Professor Sharon Hirsch wrote this. Thank you for letting me read this, Sid. It was a true privilege. Although you write your story beautifully, you don't consider it a beautiful story. And I pray that you feel the kiss of Jesus on your heart and that your heart burns with the kiss and it does not burn with your failures or your humanness. Do you get, do we get that? That what that professor is trying to tell me is just the gospel. It's just what John chapter 4 and Proverbs chapter 5 are showing us. That Jesus is kissing the very parts of ourselves that we name ugly. That Jesus is kissing the very parts of ourselves that we hide in the darkness so that we can see them. Do we trust tonight that Jesus' kiss smooths away our fears and our failures? What's beautiful is all we have to do is come to Jesus with our hurt and heavy hearts and all we have to do is say one little word. It's a description and a request. Broken. Broken. Would you pray with me?
Father, um, a lot that's there. Uh, it's hard to preach that. It's hard to think about all the ways in which I'm sick and sore with um, sex, but also uh, I'm thankful to think of all the ways that I'm glad and happy and treasure what you've given us. Bodies that feel intensely, the bodies that long to be with each other and with you. And I pray that you'd be with these students as they wrestle with what your scripture says. I pray for the conversations. I pray for the prayers, um, the half-finished, maybe broken prayers. I pray that you would be um, with us, wherever we are with this message. That you'd help us to hear it, to consider it, to give charity, but also, and to give consideration. But also, Father, I pray that it would draw us to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.